Hi, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Dead and Goods podcast. I'm speaking to Alfonso Pecatiello, who is the head of uh, fixed income portfolio management at ING Bank in Germany. Uh, hi, Alfonso. Nice to have you on the podcast. Hey, hey, a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you. Um, so you, how do you get your current tool? What's your background like? So I actually... Uh, it all started when I was, I think, 15 or so, and uh, I had lunch breaks from school with my mother, and she's actually, she's a treasurer of a small bank. She came in at lunch, had these uh, computers on, on the lunch table, looking at charts and stuff, and I was asking her, what the hell is that? So I started to get curious about all these charts, and these charts were representing financial products that she was looking at for her daily activities, Right. So it was mostly Italian government bonds. Uh, I'm Italian, by the way. I guess my accent already gave that up, but okay. Um, and I just got curious and I started digging into it and asking her questions and why, what is this chart representing? Uh, what are the underlying uh, factors that are moving it? And I was always curious about connecting the dots of the financial system and understanding more. So then I chose um, macroeconomics at the university couple of years there and then the master of science was more quantitative finance so option pricing and modeling and all that stuff and i started with an internship in uh, in at my current employer and then you know career went pretty well it was all about being curious being driven uh, to connect the dots and understand the macro drivers that connect different asset classes and i think curiosity may you know drives a lot of success from buy side people uh, if you treat this one as a job uh, and it bores you. I find it really hard to find, you know, successful people that are bored by their daily buy side job. I always find successful people in buy side job that are really, you know, into what they do. Maybe they also read articles over the weekend, not because it's a job, but because they like it. Okay, that's a that's a pretty good thing. Um, you write a lot about quantitative easing on your blog and why it really doesn't have any effect on the economy. So why does that happen? Is, is, is all the money printing just an illusion? Yes, I would say so. So people, I think financial media skews people to believe that central banks are the most important financial actors out there. They are omnipotent and they drive asset prices and they drive everything. They print money and all that godlike adjectives that are assigned to central banks. Central banks are very important, don't get me wrong, but there are a few myths around them that I would like to debunk. I mean, quantitative easing is not nothing else than uh, a central bank swapping bonds for um, zero duration reserves. That's what happens. So, I mean, the, the private sector had a bond on their balance sheet. The central bank comes in and switches that bond out for the reserve. Done. That's it. Mm -hmm. And then the, the private entity, instead of having 100 bonds and zero reserves, I'm just making an example, will find themselves with 50 bonds and 50 reserves. And, you know, and, and then the central bank will find themselves with more reserves because they've created them to buy the bonds and more bonds because they've purchased the bonds. And that's it. And then the old theory about quantitative easing being inflationary uh, starts from the fact that these reserves that end up in the private banking system can be lent out. No, they can't. That's not how it works. 
Reserves are simply interbank money. They are what I call being inside money. They never reach the outside economy. Reserves are just useful for settling interbank paying, payment systems within banks and between the bank and the central bank. And that's it. They cannot be lent out. They do never reach the real economy. And that is the fallacy of believing that quantitative easing, the name quantitative should tell you something. It's a notion that basically drives you to think that a certain quantity of monetary base and reserves belong to the monetary base will at some point push economic activity up and inflation up, right? That's why you call it quantitative easing. You ease the quantity of monetary base such that it will generate inflation. Well, I think anecdotally, this has been proven wrong. I mean, Japan has been doing this for 30 years. I'm going to ask you, where is inflation over there? Europe has been doing this for 10 years. Where is inflation? US been doing this for 10 years as well. Same question. So you have to start wondering what's wrong. And the part that is broken in this mechanism is that people think reserves can be lent out by the private banking systems. Private banking system lends out and it's only constraining its lending by the capital. It has to attach to a certain loan. And when I lend you money, then I have to make sure you pay me back and I have to reserve a certain capital before lending. But if I have a quadrillion reserves or 100 million reserves, this is not going to impact the behavior of the private banking systems. They're going to lend if they trust you to pay their money back, if the loan yields are attractive enough, if the return on equity is attractive enough, and if they have capital to lend against. And they are not reserve constraints. They are capital constraints. And the other constraint is the demand for credit. You are going to want to borrow if you find productive outlet where to spend this money and if you're not over leveraged already and private debt to gdp in the us is 165 percent private debt to gdp so this is households and this is corporates 165 percent is as high as it gets in 2007 it was 170 percent just before the great financial crisis now obviously you know, with an aging population and productivity being what it is, why would you want to borrow more? Where is this credit demand coming from? And even if there is credit demand, why would a bank lend when loan yields are extremely low? And when, you know, the credit worthiness of this over-leveraged private sector is already debatable. So all you know, quantitative easing is not inflationary. Probably you can argue it's even on the margin deflationary. That's a, that's a fair point. But um, next question would be, what is the strategy out of this? Does Is fiscal policy the answer then? Put money into people's hands? Yeah, that's a, that's a good one. So the next argument people bring to me is that, yes, quantitative easing alone, finally, people realize it's not inflationary. But if you combine quantitative easing and fiscal deficits at the same time, so-called debt monetization, that that is going to be inflationary. Right. I mean, that's the second thesis. You add the two legs, the monetary leg and the fiscal leg that has to be inflationary. OK, now I've got one remark immediately is that Japan deficit to GDP has been between six and seven percent over the last six years. All right. So six or seven percent deficits every year from the government and the Bank of Japan purchases in percentage of GDP have been even higher than that. So Japan has monetized all their deficits, which has been relatively big, right? So 6-7% a year and more. I still have the same question. Where is the inflation? I still haven't seen that happening in Japan. 
One of the reasons for that is that people forget to look at the private sector. When the public sector is going into deficits, it's effectively spending money that the government doesn't have and doesn't intend to tax, right? I mean, that's, that's the idea. You spend more than what you're going to tax, and therefore you end up in deficit, right? So obviously, if you spend money that you don't want to tax, you're effectively creating new money, new credit into existence. But what is the private sector doing with this credit? You said it yourself. You're going to put money in people's pocket. Okay, so what is the private sector doing with this money? The private sector in Japan is deleveraging. It's telling you very clearly that they don't like being more overleveraged. They are already overleveraged. They see stagnant productivity. They see no growth. They, don't, they see an aging. They, they are aging. They want to save for when they're old. They are not looking to spend this money. And so the private sector is effectively offsetting almost completely the public sector effort to print money. They are effectively destroying money by deleveraging and paying back their old debts. So as a public entity, you want to create new credit. As a private sector, you want to destroy existing credit by deleveraging. Look at America. America is obviously much better positioned in terms of demographic and productivity than Japan is. But then you look at the last rounds of fiscal stimulus. 50% of this money has been spent to pay back your debts or to save. That's what the Americans have chosen to do. And we are in America now. Imagine in Japan or Europe what would have happened. Now, so when I say the United States has printed 10 trillion in deficits, in reality so far, the net credit creation in the United States has been maybe 5 trillion because the private sector has de decided to spend about half of what has been paid to them to pay back existing debt. That's effectively destroying credit against the public sector, which is creating credit. So looking at the fiscal side of, you know, only the government side of it and saying, if I do net deficits and I monetize them, that has to be inflationary. You forget to look at the other side of the coin, which is the private sector. What is the private sector doing with this credit creation from the government? And in Japan, they're screaming at you that they don't want this credit. And in the US, they're starting to scream at you that they don't want this credit either. So, you know, the easiest way to try and get around this would be for the banks to lend new money. For the banks to lend, this would be a more healthy sign of credit demand picking up because you are not forcing people to accept credit. People are willingly asking for more credit, the private sector, I mean, right? They're going mm -hmm. to banks and they're asking for loans. Today, they are not. The year-on-year -year lending in America is flat from banks. It's 0% year-on-year. Banks are not lending money. People are not asking for credit. I think that tells you something. Okay. Uh, you live in Italy. Now, Italy has faced a low growth, some, some, some sort of economic stagnation post-2008. There was a, a fiscal crisis with the with bond yields going high, and even after the crisis ended and Italian bond yields converged to an extent with German ones, we haven't seen high growth in in in, in Italy. Why has that happened? So I'm very sad to say this, but it's uh, the honest truth. Um, Italy has two main problems. The first comes from endogenous. Uh, structural problems. So Italy did not enact structural reforms to boost their potential growth over the last, I'm going to say, 40 years. The last serious reform in Italy was driven by, well, it's basically the pension reform, 
And in order for us to get that, we almost were on the brink of default. We had to install a technocratic government and only the technocratic government could pass a couple of reforms that actually eased the mind of bond investors. So we almost had to be on the brink of defaults to see any reforms, right? When you have no reforms, you have low productivity and a stagnant economic growth and aging population, you will end up with no growth. Now you couple on that, the existing debt issue and that burden that had been accumulated in Europe between the 70s and 2000, because don't forget that before entering the Eurozone, the Italian business model was based on, it's basically an emerging market model. So it's, it's the double, the twin deficit model and the devaluation of your currency. You had deficit every year, you had current account deficits as well, and you used to devalue your local currency, which was the Italian lira, in order to attract foreign investors in Italy and you know, in order to make your exports more competitive. This was the business model, right? Then you entered the euro. And when you, when you entered the eurozone, you can't do this anymore. You are not, first of all, you have Maastricht rules that prevent you from having a deficit larger than 3% of GDP. It's even worse than that because you are not supposed to have structural deficits. You're supposed to structurally improve your primary government balance every year. That's what the Maastricht rule says. So you cannot do structural deficits anymore. Your current account surplus or deficits will depend, well, on your internal competitiveness against other Eurozone members because you are assigned a currency which you cannot devalue, you cannot print as a government, you cannot add liquidity as a central bank because now you have a European central bank that takes decision for 19 euro area uh, countries that use the euro, right? So the only way for you to try and be competitive in this environment is to devalue your wages. So you're going to start paying people less in order to make sure that you are more competitive and your corporates effectively have higher margins and your exports are more competitive. And that's what Italy has been doing. They need to have an inflation rate, which is below the German inflation rate. They need to have wages that are below the German wages. And I'm using Germany as the barometer for the Eurozone competitiveness, right? It's the largest economy. It's a large exporter. So effectively, you're riddled because you need your real inflation-adjusted wages to be lower. And that it's a self-fulfilling prophecy because if you don't enact reforms and you don't increase your structural growth, and you can't go back to the old model of devaluing your currency and printing current account deficits and, and budget deficits, you will need to destroy your real wages. And that destroys people's real purchasing power, and it brings your growth even lower. So it's, it's, a, it's a riddle, you know, it's a system that can't, can't work, and it doesn't work well for Italy. First and foremost, because structural reforms were never enacted and then at some point, frustration builds up in the, in the voters and they end up voting the right wing or any way for a change, as they call it. But there is no secret, secret recipe for this, unfortunately. Would Italy be better off if it decided to leave the Eurozone and return to a private currency? Or is that too risky now? It's a <laughs> wow, very hot question. Um, it's definitely very risky, as in it is a extremely cumbersome process. Um, the Eurozone is today intertwined, so you have countries that owe to each other within the Eurozone. You have the so-called target two balances that are effectively a record of how much uh, a national central bank owns to the Euro system or to other central banks. 
in terms of settling balances against each other. And Italy as a target to deficit, uh, I think last time I checked of about 1 trillion euros or so against the sum of all other national central banks in euro that actually have a credit against Italy. So that tells you that, you know, the, the settling of target two balances would be a major problem, but also Italian government that is owned by other Eurozone investors. So German banks own Italian government bonds and French banks own Italian government bonds. Those bonds are denominated in euro. The moment you get out of the Eurozone, those bonds, some of them, depending on the legislation, might want to be redenominated in lira. And obviously, you know, you have to assume that the purchasing power of the lira wouldn't be equal to the purchasing power of the euro immediately after Italy exits the Eurozone. So that also would be very cumbersome. The third most cumbersome thing, in my opinion, is that, I don't know if there is an acronymus for that, the too big to fail, but Italy is, is too big to leave, if you wish. And I mean, the, the euro area is also a geopolitical project. It's a geopolitical project because it unites 19 countries using the euro and 27 countries overall, if I didn't lose the count, something like that. And it creates a large block that is able to negotiate trading terms with large blocks like the US or India or China in a much better way than every single country in Europe would be by themselves, right? So once you break that geopolitical uh, shield effectively for all the, the, the 19 single or 27 single European countries, you're also facing serious geopolitical issues here immediately straight away. So I think there is a vested interest from all European countries to try and stay cohesive as much as possible. And probably the European Recovery Fund. So the first time that Europe tries a joint fiscal issuance from all countries tells you that during a, Europe is forged during crisis, as they say, because mm -hmm. crisis force uh, people to take decisions. And so far, Europe has been... Uh, you know, relatively resilient in crisis rather than breaking down. It seems it's breaking down, but it's never. And I think it's because the geopolitical importance of Europe is, is the project Europe is, is very high. Okay, so that's a fair point. Uh, Europe was supposed to have its Hamilton moment, like how Alexander Hamilton decided that the federal government sh should take the debts of the states. Um, the, the European Commission was supposed to issue Euro bonds um, for whom the risk all the member states would jointly have. Uh, do you think that the, in future crises, the EU should uh, take more risk collectively or it should be left to the individual states? No, I think if you, if you plan to have uh, Europe, the Hamiltonian moment, as you correctly called it, should not be a moment, but it should be a process. It should be something that you strive towards to complete an incomplete union that has a monetary union, but no fiscal union of any sort at the moment. So it has some fiscal rules that are supposed to uh, drive fiscal decisions in every state, but the reality is that they're very lax. And also the enforcement of these rules is very lax. So we have seen over the last 10 years that countries did well, a bit what they wanted at the end of the day. And um, the direction of uh, fiscal policies was very different across countries. And that obviously hurts uh, a union, the credibility of a union, and also the very existence of a union. I mean, we described the case of Italy before, uh, already having a monetary union. So one central bank 
setting policy rates for 19 euro countries is very, very difficult. I mean, the natural equilibrium real interest rates for Italy is extremely different than for Austria, the Netherlands or Germany because of uh, different productivity and maybe slightly different demographics, slightly different capital misallocations problems. So that's already difficult. The central bank has to do this for 19 countries that have uh, different policies, different that, that have enacted different reforms. They have different uh, structural drivers of their economy. Now, if fiscal starts to go all over the place, then it makes it even more difficult. So you're, the answer to your question is, if I were Europe, I would rather try to go to a full union rather than this crippled thing that we are facing today. That's a fair point. Now, uh, to your substack, you, you talked about the macro compass where it's a two by two matrix of global credit tightening and uh, central bank easing. Where do you think we are right now in July 2021? So I just published an update this morning uh, on my Substack, um, which is called the Macro Compass. And well, it's named after the Macro Compass, which is this four quadrant tool that I use. And I think in July 2021, we are back into quadrant one. So this is the top left of my quadrant, uh, top left of my compass, sorry. Um, the x-axis and the y-axis of this compass are driven by two metrics. One of it is the global credit impulse, and the other one is the relative monetary policy stance of different monetary authorities. Mm -hmm. So the quadrant one would be the top left quadrant that effectively is the one where credit creation is decelerating. So the credit impulse is coming down. And let's say the monetary, the relative monetary policy stance is on a net mild, net easing basis, okay? So this is the, the, the quadrant that I call the secular quadrant, top left. So why do I say that? Is because credit creation is structurally very low all over the world. And we discussed that before. I mean, the credit impulse in the largest five economies measures the change in pace of credit creation. So it's the second derivative of credit credit stock effectively. So the year-on-year -year change of the year-on-year -year change of credit all over the world. And it tells you what is the acceleration, the change of pace of this credit creation. And because the world is going uh, you know, as scalable technology, aging demographics, and all the structural trends you know, the appetite for credit is less and less. And when it's less and less, credit creation decelerates, right? And then you naturally move structurally towards the left side of the compass. When central banks are on a net easing stance, then you move towards the top left quadrant. And this monetary stance is relative compared to two metrics. The natural real interest rate, so the real interest rate at which an economy can just function at full potential, basically, not too hot, not too cold. It's called R star in jargon. And uh, the other metric is uh, effectively market expectation. So what are, what are people expecting the central bank to do, right? And then the central bank can decide to be more dovish or more hawkish against this consensus, right? And at the moment, we have a Federal Reserve that, that is on, on a real interest rate, Federal funds rate are 0%, basically. And if you assume inflation is around 2%, then it's minus 2% real interest rates against a natural real interest rate, which is about 0 to 0 0.5 positive. So this is very easy as an absolute monetary policy stance. And you know the expectations of the market are pretty 
uh, easy as well for the future. So they expect now few hikes over the next three to four years. And the Federal Reserve, yes, is moving towards tightening their policy stance, but they're not telling you they're going to hike 20 times over the next three years, right? So you can consider the Federal Reserve and other central banks to be on a relatively net easing stance. Credit creation is decelerating, so you move to the top left quadrant. And when that happens, you are in secular trends. As credit creation doesn't pick up, it's very hard to produce any meaningful inflation. Interest rates are very low for good reasons. So then you own long duration proxy equities, so mm-hmm. technology, you own the Nasdaq rather than owning uh, the Russell value index, or you would own the Nasdaq rather than owning Euro stocks, for example. You would own developed markets rather than owning emerging markets. Uh, you would not be short bonds. You would not like industrial commodities. So any, any asset class that is linked to the real economy, it's high beta on the real economy and on the credit creation, on the growth impulse, you would not prefer that. And you'd rather prefer assets that do well in secular trends of lower interest rates. So uh, technology does very well. Uh, bond deals do generally pretty well. Um, precious metals, it, it depends from uh, the cycles. But in general, you would prefer growth over value and the secular trends over the reflationary trends that were very much in vogue for the last nine months. But I think we are the tide is turning pretty quickly back to the secular trends. So you mentioned growth versus value there. A lot of people make uh, the take this as an analogy that growth is like having a long duration bond and value is like having a short duration bond. Uh, do you think that's true? And if so, why? Yeah. Uh, Let's say, yes, I would say yes. The answer is yes to this question. Um, value stocks are normally much more inclined and, and, and um, boosted by real economic activity. So if I take an example of a financial stock, then if I own a bank stock, I want the yield curve to be steeper. And the reason why I want that is because on the liability side of my balance sheet, I'm going to have my, well, my liabilities and my liabilities are going to be generally shorter term than my assets. So it's, it's so-called maturity transformation mechanism of a bank. Now, if the curve is steeper, then you, you will make money, you will make carry, you will make margins. Then you will price these higher margins, you will net present value them or discount cash flow them into today's price of the equity, and then the price will be higher. Right? I mean, that's, that's relatively simple. So financial stocks would benefit from a steeper curve. And you can only have a steeper curve if the market is extrapolating sustainably higher nominal growth, so real growth plus inflation going forward. Right? That's what creates and feeds a steeper curve. Um, and growth stocks would instead work the other way around. Um, they would benefit and there would be a bond proxy well, the reason why they're called bond proxy, I think one of the reasons is also that the real interest rates in America or in Europe or anywhere you look at are negative today. So if you have your savings and you're investing in risk-free real interest rates, like I don't know, 10-year US bonds, today you get the yield of 1.3% and the foreseeable inflation over the next 10 years, let's call it 2%, okay, just to make it simple. Now, 1.3 minus 2 is a negative number. It's negative 70 basis point, which means that every year you will lose purchasing power. And so people are obviously looking for an alternative to where to park their money. 
Packing money on a savings account will lose you even more because it will pay you probably 0%. So there you will lose 2%. On uh, buying a 10-year bond, you will also lose in purchasing power about 70 basis points a month. So you look for alternatives, right? And I think people interpret growth stocks, especially US tech stock, giant stocks. I'm talking the FANGs, for example, mm -hmm. as a relatively high quality, safe proxy for US bonds. Uh, because the duration of their cash flow is very, very long. I mean, you expect these companies to be around because they are part of a secular trend. You do not expect technology to you know, be out of the equation in five years. You actually expect them to strengthen their quasi-monopoly in the industry and have reliable cash flows. And the earnings yield of Apple is, for example, above 3% in nominal terms. So I treat these, or people, treat these as proxy for long duration bonds, which obviously carry a risk over treasuries, but they also offer a higher PE, or if you want to invert it, uh, an earnings yield compared to the bond yield. And that's why they probably do pretty well, especially in a relative basis in quadrant one compared to value stocks that need proper cash flows and you know a booming or, or anyway, a, a sustainably strong nominal growth to perform well. Okay. Uh, you write about your personal account investing strategies on your Substack. How do you size your positions? Because a lot of people get um, the direction of their trades correct, but they usually mess up by sizing positions. Yeah. Yeah. Very valid question. So let's start from the main point I want to make on this is that you will probably be right about 50 to 55% of the times you trade. You heard me correctly. You will cost a, uh, sorry, toss a coin and you will be right about 50% of the times over the long term. And when you trade, if you have an edge or a good macro analysis or good technical analysis or whatever, you will probably be able to skew this percentage a little bit in your favor to about 55% of the times. Certain strategies are right 60, 65% of the times, but the average investor is not right more than 55% of the times. Some people even 50% of the times. I was right last year 52% of the times. So the way you make money is by making sure that your losses are small and your profits are large. So what this means is that you have to be absolutely religious about stopping out about setting a trade in an asymmetric way, either by construction or by imposition, as I call it. So by construction, you can do it this via options, for example, that's an easy way. So if you buy an option, you know what the option premium is and that's what you can lose. But the payoff is generally larger or convex compared to the payoff that you just decided to put on the table, right? So by being long options and not short options, you buy construction, have this sort of uh, situation where if you're wrong 50% of the times, you will lose the option premium 50% of the times. But when you're right 50% of the times, you will make more than the option premium. Mm. And therefore, at the end of the year, you will be in profit and not in loss. The other way for doing this is by imposition. So if you don't trade options, but you trade a linear product, all right, so let's make it a stock, and you buy it at $100 and you have a, a profit target that is one or two standard deviation higher, just to say, I don't know, $20 higher, 20% profit. Your stop loss 
should be asymmetrically skewed, which means that you should try to stop out before you lose 20%. This way, even if you're right 50% of the times and you were religious about your stops, without whining on why it didn't work, but just literally stopping out and moving to your next idea, at the end of the year, you will also be profitable just by being right 50% of the times. So the other um, uh, advice I have, uh, together with asymmetric stop losses compared to profit targets, is to move your profit targets higher as the market is moving your way. So if your stock, if, if you bought at 100 and it goes to 120, well, it's trading well. You don't trade profits at 120, but you rather move your stop from 90 to 110, and then you move your next profit to 130, if you see what I want to say. So if the stock keeps on moving higher and it goes to 130, you again move it higher. So this way you, then you don't take profits too early, but you take stops early. So if the stock reprices down to 110, your stop was effectively a profit because you effectively made $10, right? On the other hand, if the rally keeps on extending, you never take profit. And sometimes this strategy makes you just double your money on a trade. And it's that single trade that will make your money deadier. That's enough. You don't need to be a hero. You don't need to be right 100% of the times. That's not the game in professional money, in professional money management. The last hint is the sizing of the position itself. So you either stop out asymmetrically or you size the right way. And sizing the right way means looking at the implied and realized volatility of your underlying product. If you're trading Bitcoin, it's not the same as trading uh, Euro dollar, all right? We, without leverage, I mean, both of the products. So, the, the, you know, they, Bitcoin is a hundred volatility product. It's, it's a thing that has a daily volatility of like four or five percent. And Euro dollar has a daily volatility of what, 0.2, 0 0.3%. So obviously, the, st the, the, the standard deviation moves uh, in multiples of these products are very different from each other and you should also size your position accordingly. Okay. Do you think most people sell too early? Oh, absolutely, yes. It's the most common mistake, clearly. I mean, people are uh, in general very skewed towards taking profits very early because they like the green flashing numbers on their screens and they have the fear of missing out. I mean, if it reverses overnight while I'm sleeping, what am I going to do? I lost my profits, right? Okay. So yes, it's all about discipline. And if you apply trailing profit strategies, extremely painful. Despite you're making money, it's extremely painful because you see this thing that you thought could make 10%, it's now 30% up and you still can't sell. <laughs> and, then, and, then you go, it, and then it reprices down to 25% and you're itching because your, your trailing stop is at 20% profit, you still can't sell. Uh, but that, that is one of the most um, money-making strategies I have in terms of profit, you know, stops and profit targets because it forces you to let your profits run. You work in fixed income. A lot of people have misconceptions about fixed income. What's the one that irritates that, that you the most? Wow. How, ma how much time do I have? Uh, <laughs> let's see. Uh, I'm going to say... Um, I'm going to say that people cannot distinguish between nominal interest rates and real interest rates, or they don't pay attention to real interest rates that are extremely important. I can make you one example. 
which is people saying that uh, bank deposits in the Eurozone were or still are largely rewarded 0%. So if you put money in a bank account, it's at 0%, you buy a short-term uh, bond. Well, some of them are negative, but in some cases, 0% yield you know, for a few years. And people actually assume that they are not losing money by doing this. And they obviously are because the nominal interest rate at 0% minus the positive inflation rate is destroying your purchasing power every year. And people don't realize that. So you see the change of behavior when some banks started applying negative nominal interest rates on bank deposits. Mm -hmm. And then people were like, oh my God, I mean, instead of 0%, I'm, I'm now paying minus 0.5%. So I, I have to do something. The same people had 0% interest rates on their bank account for six years. So during those six years, they still lost money because inflation ate away their purchasing power against a 0% nominal return. And they were pretty calm about it. And that really sends me nuts because it's, it's the savings of people and their purchasing power. And they look at fixed income instruments in general uh, in the wrong way. So not in real terms, but they look at them in nominal terms. Uh, you have a pretty large bond port portfolio. And Europe has had zero and even negative nominal yields, as you said. I've always been baffled. Why would somebody buy something, buy a bond where the, where the yield is clearly below, in, below inflation for so long? Good question. Before I answer, let me say that I am not speaking on behalf of my employer in this interview, in this podcast. I'm just representing myself and my decisions about, you know, and the view of the world about my private account. I'm not representing my employer. In general, I can tell you that um, institutional investors are sometimes, um, I call them um, institutional price takers. They're not price setters. They're just regulatory driven price takers. And regulation is the, is the buzzword in here. It's the buzzword because, you know, um, for example, if you're a pension fund or you're an insurance company or a bank treasury in Europe, by regulation, you're somehow forced to own bonds, to own a fixed income, nominal fixed income instrument, either to service your pension liabilities or to service your insurance payments or to own a liquidity buffer like a bank treasury has to. So the regulator writes down rules and it says you can own a cash or cash equivalents or you can own bonds of certain formats, so corporate bond or a government bond with certain liquidity rules attached to it and you can get around it. So if your ECB interest rate overnight is minus 0.5% and mind as well that pension funds and insurance companies do not have access to the European Central Bank deposit rate in Europe, so they have to deposit this money in the interbank system. So towards, you know, the private bank, this private bank is going to charge them probably even more than minus 0.5%. So if this is your harder rate for your cash or cash equivalent that the regulator will force you to own in your liquidity buffer or in your pension portfolio or in whatever, what are you going to do? You're look, you will look for a way to escape at least this negative 0.5% towards something that looks a little bit better than that. And if that little better than that is 0% nominal yields, that's already something. Yes, it's negative real interest rates, but your alternative driven by regulation is even worse than that. And that's why you have what I call regulatory driven price takers. These people are effectively forced to own fixed income.
Okay, that's a fair point. Uh, you've been writing on, on, on your Substack, and one of the things I admire is that you're never scared to um, admit you're wrong. What's the most important mental habit you've gone out, you've gotten out of putting your um, thoughts in public? <laughs> it's a process that started, I think, a year ago with um, with LinkedIn. So I was posting mm-hmm. some um, thoughts, macro thoughts on LinkedIn, and um, it is very interesting to see how people perceive your thoughts in a different way and how they are able to maybe criticize you sometimes, which is fine. Uh, but by doing this, I also learned that some of the conceptions I had about our monetary system work were not completely accurate. So it's it's a very interesting process. As long as your mind is open towards admitting you're, you're just a human being that will make mistakes, I think it's a fantastic process of learning. And the comments as well in the Substack are sometimes extremely uh, sharp and accurate. And they make me wonder if my underlying assumptions on the monetary system are wrong or right. Um, the key here is a bit like in trading. Your stop loss uh, sets the threshold, your pain threshold. It tells you how much can you be, how much can you be acceptably wrong before exiting a trade. The same goes with macro thoughts. If you put out something there and somebody comes with a sharp comment and you reflect on what he has written and it makes you realize you're wrong, I don't see what the shame is in admitting that you you just were wrong on that topic. And to be honest, on Twitter that I'm using a lot or uh, just with other practitioners in the business, I find that they are very, very reluctant in admitting they're the wrong call. They had to be stopped out. I don't see what the problem is. I mean... We all make uh, bad decisions, wrong trades. We have wrong views. I think it's all about managing risk and being consistent and being flexible and learning. That's that's the whole journey. So it's a great point you you make there. And my last question to you is: What's the kindest thing someone's ever done to you of your entire career? <laughs> career okay so you're talking professional business i think uh i have to owe this to my previous boss so the first time he brought me to london um i was i think 24 5 so just started my 24 probably so just started my career and he was a very seasoned professional well respected in the business and I he brought me to London to visit other counterparts and sales and people that, you know, had to get to know me as a, as a, as a fund manager, as a portfolio manager. I just had no clue how, you know, just these guys were talking another, you know, Arab to an Italian guy. I just had no clue what they were saying, right? And I was lost and tried to take notes. And, uh, but I was very humbled by that and, he very often took the time to guide me through what went on and what was relevant, what was less relevant, the tricks of the game by the sell side as well, which I now know a bit better than when I started. Um, but yes, I mean, being mentored by um, somebody that cares about your professional development is the best thing that can ever happen to a young guy uh, that gets into the business. It's the very first steps where you are, you, you are eager to learn the most but you're also prone to make the largest mistakes. And if you're mentored by somebody who's, you know, really sincerely interested in your professional development, that's the best thing you, you can do. So try to find a, 
solid mentor is, is, is a good hint. What's the biggest mistake young people make in their earlier careers? They don't listen. They don't listen and they don't, um, they don't try to suck up as much knowledge as they can. You should be a sponge when you get in, an absolute sponge. So any event, any, any person around you, even doing things you think are boring, like hell, they might turn out to be extremely useful in your professional career later on. And I mean, I've been there, I'm, I'm 30 years old, so it's not long ago that there was a, an even younger gun going around, unwilling to listen to everybody. And uh, I, I thought I knew how it all worked, despite it was my second week in the business and stuff like that. And I regret not being an even, uh, you know, an even bigger sponge in terms of learning and asking around and listening to everything that was said and asking follow-up questions pestering, literally pestering people for feedback and, and follow-up. So um, if there was one thing I would change is, is that. And the hint to a young person in the business would be exactly that as well. Okay. Uh, that's some very good advice. And I think everybody who listens to it will be much improved. Uh, thanks for coming. And this is the end of the show. It was my pleasure to be on board. Um, if you guys want to know more about my work, uh, as you mentioned multiple times, I have a substack. It's called the Macro Compass, as the basically the, the tool that I use to analyze macro and markets. Uh, it's a free newsletter, guys, so you can just go in there and subscribe if you like the work. Thank you so much.